Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, we speak with a Colorado journalist who worked on the climate disaster film Don't Look Up, which has been nominated for several Academy Awards. We're finally starting to talk about this, and even if it makes folks uncomfortable, uh, that's okay. And we'll hear about a bill at the state capitol to ensure hospital patients can have visitors, even in a pandemic. That's coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. A bit later in the show, we'll sit down with Denver-based journalist David Sirota, who worked on the story for the hit Netflix film Don't Look Up, which was recently nominated for four Academy Awards. But first, one of the hardest things people are dealing with during the coronavirus pandemic is not being able to visit their loved ones in the hospital. Many Coloradans are dying alone as the virus prompts hospitals to restrict visitation. Some state lawmakers want to change that. KUNC's state capitol reporter Scott Franz tells us about an effort to allow patients at least one visitor even during a pandemic. Elizabeth Ryder's family was not by her side two Mother's Days ago when she was fighting pneumonia in a Denver hospital. The coronavirus pandemic was just starting to rage, and hospitals were keeping visitors out to limit the spread of the virus. Elizabeth's husband, Steve, says they spoke often on FaceTime, but the isolation drove her into a deep depression. And I dug into my bag of tricks to get her to smile. Almost 20 years with her of tricks to get her to smile. And nothing worked. And I could see how it was just taking her down and really hurting her chances of coming home. Eleven days after Mother's Day, a blood clot hit Elizabeth Ryder's lungs and killed her. Steve Ryder blames the hospital's strict visitation policy for his wife's death. I believe with everything in me, had we been allowed in, my wife would still be here. My boys would still have their mother. Ryder was one of dozens of people who traveled to the Capitol this month to support Senate Bill 53. It would force Colorado hospitals to allow at least one visitor per day, even during an emergency like the coronavirus pandemic. People have died of broken hearts. Republican Jerry Sonnenberg of Sterling on the Eastern Plains is leading the effort. They've died because they haven't had somebody there with them to help them make decisions when maybe they were on medication. Hospital visitation policies have not been uniform during the pandemic, and the state health department got 52 formal complaints from people who thought they were too strict. But Josh Ewing of the Colorado Hospital Association says the restrictions are necessary. Restricting visitor access and reducing the number of people inside our healthcare facilities was key to minimizing the spread of COVID-19 and saving countless lives. He's also urging lawmakers to stay out of the debate. Senate Bill 53 doesn't provide the flexibility necessary for our healthcare facilities to respond accordingly to rapidly evolving public health scenarios. But almost two years after losing his wife, Steve Ryder sees things differently. He's leading a national group and lobbying states across the country to change the visitation laws. Let's balance it. And it got so out of balance that far too many people died. 
because of that isolation and because they didn't have someone there watching. The issue is also dividing some in the medical community. While most people advocating for changes are patients or their loved ones, some doctors, including Jeff Leininger, agree with Ryder. Medical research shows that the loss of emotional and physical connection with loved ones has devastating effects on mental and physical health. After three hours of emotional testimony this month, lawmakers, including Democrat Julie Gonzalez, were swayed. She says strict visitation rules stopped her from being with her younger brother after he had a stroke in 2020. And usually what my family does, when anybody goes to the hospital, we go and we set up shop. We take over the emergency room and we take shifts. And that was robbed from us. Gonzalez delayed a vote on the bill to give the sponsors more time to answer questions. And this week, from his home in Sterling, Senator Jerry Sonnenberg says he's hopeful it will advance in some form. We're making headway that people are understanding, you know, we may have swung the pendulum a little too far in the name of safety, where we probably didn't actually make things any safer. Colorado is not the only state where hospital visitation policies are under review. New Hampshire lawmakers had a tearful debate over the issue earlier this month. And Republicans in Oklahoma introduced a bill very similar to Colorado's. The bills will be debated in the coming weeks. I'm Scott Franz at the State Capitol. Academy Award nominations were announced last week. One of the films to receive multiple nominations was Don't Look Up, a dark satire about the looming destruction of the world and our collective inability to confront global issues. The nominations include Best Picture, Best Film Editing, and Best Original Screenplay, which is where our next guest comes in. David Sirota is a journalist, author, podcaster, and a speechwriter based in Denver, who, along with writer-director Adam McKay created the movie, which has become one of the most widely viewed films of all time on Netflix. David Sirota joins us now to talk about how audiences have reacted to the film and about the uncomfortable parallels to real life. David, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I want to start by asking about your reaction to the news that you'd been nominated for an Oscar. I mean, I think a lot of us would have been waiting by the phone, anticipating that call or sitting with the TV on. Uh, Was that you? You know, when this project started out, I was thrilled that just a movie was going to be made. Uh, I then when we got the cast that we got, I was thrilled that it was probably going to be something of a big movie just by virtue of the fact that that it had people like Leonardo DiCaprio, Jennifer Lawrence, Meryl Streep. Uh, Then when it became the second most watched movie in the history of the world's largest streaming platform, I was kind of blown away uh, that was not something I really uh, expected. I was thrilled about because it, I think the movie has such an important underlying message. Uh, and then to get an, an Oscar nomination, I mean, I've said it to my wife and family. I mean, that's a life plot twist I never, ever imagined ever. So I'm still sort of uh, n- kind of having an out-of-body experience. And I, I can't believe it actually happened. And the reason I'm truly thrilled that it happened is because I hope it further amplifies uh, the movie's underlying message about the need 
for our society to do a better job of taking science and facts seriously, especially when there's science and facts about the imminent crises threatening our world. Right. Well, for those who haven't seen it, uh, very briefly, the plot revolves around a pair of scientists uh, played by Leonardo DiCaprio and Jennifer Lawrence who discover this huge planet-killing comet is hurtling straight toward Earth. They go on a media tour to warn the public and to try to galvanize a response, but they find their concerns are not taken seriously by the government, certainly not by the news media who just find the whole thing too unsexy to give it any attention. Could you, David, share the story of how you and Adam McKay, uh, who also wrote and directed the film, how did you come up with the idea? So after Adam had uh, done Vice, the terrific movie about uh, Dick Cheney, he and I were talking uh, about what his next project should be. He and I have been friends for a long time. And I said, listen, you have to use your superpowers of mixing comedy and political themes for a movie about uh, climate. And he said, yeah, I know, but I, I, I've been trying to think about how to do that. And I, I don't want to do a kind of Mad Max dystopian sci-fi horror film. And so I'm trying to figure out what to do. Uh, a little while later, we had a series of conversations about some climate reporting I was doing in my journalism work. And I was lamenting that, that while they were what I thought were good stories, important stories, they were hard to, it was hard to get traction with them. And I said at one point, I said, you know, it's really, really feels like a, an asteroid is headed towards Earth and nobody cares. And he said, wait a minute, I, I wonder if there is a nugget of this movie idea that I'm looking for in this. And we started then spitballing scenes, going back and forth. What would actually happen if an asteroid was headed towards Earth? Would we really take it seriously or would it be frivolized and, and distracted from in the media? And we started you know, developing some scenes. And he said, I'm going to go write a screenplay. Uh, and I said, okay, cool. And he went and he wrote a draft of a script, brought it back. We polished it up. He put in, implemented a bunch of the, the, the notes that we, he and I went back and forth on. And then he said, I think, I think Leonardo DiCaprio and Jennifer Lawrence are interested in, in this. And I, I was kind of like, well, that's, that's great, but I, but it's Hollywood and everyone's interested in everything. And there's a huge gap between what seems to be moving forward and what actually gets made. But very soon after that, him being Adam McKay, uh, <laughs> he was like, this is actually happening. So they're sending the papers over. This is literally happening. And I was kind of blown away. Like I, I truly couldn't believe it at one level. But then again, listen, Adam McKay is an incredibly talented force. Uh, he has made terrific blockbuster movies in the past. And so if anyone was going to make a movie like this, it was going to be him. And the other thing worth saying is, is that the cast itself, I really credit them because these are major uh, actors with huge audiences. Uh, and they, in a sense, took a risk on a movie that they knew uh, was going to be a, a controversial movie with controversial themes. And it's easier, it's an easier path for uh, actors and people at that level to simply avoid controversy. I'm not saying they're martyrs or they it was a huge sacrifice, but what I'm saying is, is that they that these actors could have easily just said, you know, it's a little too controversial for me. I don't I want to play it safe. And instead, the actors in this movie, they leaned in. They said, listen, you know, we believe in the message of this movie and we're willing to put our credibility and fame out there 
to try to get this message out. So I am I feel a deep sense of gratitude to both Adam McKay for using his skills and also to the cast for being willing to use their platforms for this underlying message. Yeah, I mean, the star power in this movie is incredible. The reaction to the film, I, you mentioned that people went in knowing that it was going to be controversial. And the reaction is really polarized. People love it or they hate it. Uh, is that something that you were expecting? And how do you kind of interpret this wide spectrum of reactions? I was definitely expecting it. Uh, and I was expecting it for two reasons. Um, in general, I think movies that are made about the here and now uh, are more prone to people having strong opinions as opposed to movies that are about uh, that are set in the safety of history or set in the safety of pure fantasy that when you make a movie about now everybody naturally has their opinions about now then when you sprinkle into it the second factor when you make a movie about the here and now that is political and has political themes in it, then you're talking about something that's guaranteed uh, to generate passionate responses on uh, all sides. And I think that's healthy. I think that's good. I was not surprised by it uh, at all. Uh, and I think the conversation that's, uh, the conversations that it sparked have been terrific. Um, I think uh, people have a right to criticize the movie. I think obviously people have a right to love the movie. And, and I think the fact that it has gotten such a huge audience suggests a pent up demand for movies, TV shows, and news coverage uh, that wrestles with the issues that are scary, the issues that are controversial, uh, the issues that maybe we don't wanna talk about uh, because they're terrifying. Climate change, and this movie is in, a, in part an allegory about climate change. Climate change, I would argue, is one of those issues where we know it's happening, it's pretty scary and rightly so. And so part of climate denial uh, is is this impulse to look away from something that's scary, uh, to 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 or to tell ourselves it's not that urgent, and so this movie is saying the opposite. This movie is saying we have to struggle with scary things right in front of us, and that those things are urgent. And I think the reaction to the movie, in terms of people, just the sheer numbers of people who are watching the movie, says suggests that people actually want to, to struggle with this. Uh, maybe they've been uh, afraid to, maybe there's been a hesitancy to, but that there's kind of a release like, okay, we're, we're finally starting to talk about this. And even if it makes folks uncomfortable, uh, that's okay. And I think part of that is, is that the comedy helps with that. That we're uh, in some ways in this movie, part of the scenes that you're, you're laughing at the idea of how we distract ourselves and why we distract ourselves. And sort of the humor is, that the movie is saying that some of the things that we all know to be true, but that we don't explicitly say out loud. That's the first part of our conversation with Colorado-based journalist David Sirota, whose work on the story of the recent Netflix film Don't Look Up has been nominated for an Academy Award. We'll be back after a short break. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. We're speaking today with Denver-based journalist David Sirota. Sirota worked with writer-director Adam McKay on the story for the environmental disaster-slash-dark comedy Don't Look Up, which was recently nominated for four Academy Awards, including Best Picture and Best Original Screenplay. 
Now, you've mentioned the film as an allegory of climate change, and also themes of government corruption figure in pretty heavily. I'm thinking about the Bash mobile character, Peter Isherwell, who is wealthy, he's influential, and he literally has bought himself a seat at the table when decisions are being made about how to handle the threat from the comet. I'm curious if you've gotten reaction from real-world people in these areas, government officials or climate scientists, about how these issues are presented on screen. Listen, we've gotten a fantastic response from climate scientists who have in general said the movie uh, embodies how they feel trying to get the science out there, trying to grab the world by the lapels and make the science part of the day-to-day political and media conversation in America. Uh, And that that these climate scientists, the movie makes them feel seen. Uh, It makes them feel heard and diagnoses that key information problem. Uh, We've heard from uh, uh, lawmakers uh, who have seen the movie, who have similarly said um, the movie uh, is a clarion call for various pieces of climate legislation. I mean, uh, Jonah Hill was on the um, Jimmy Kimmel show uh, and actually shouted out some climate legislation when he was talking about the movie and it got millions and millions of views. So what what has been gratifying to me is seeing the movie being used uh, to embolden those who are sounding the alarm, uh, seeing the movie used by movements that are trying to uh, save our world. I mean, ultimately, my work as a journalist is not uh, different in a, in some senses from the work that I did on this movie. I mean, obviously reporting real world facts about the day-to-day is very different from writing and helping write a screenplay. But the point is, is that the through line in that work is to try to spotlight the major issues of the day and make them part of the conversation so that we can address these problems. And I would suggest that right now, one of our biggest problems is essentially denial. That the denial of we can look away, we don't have to look up, we can distract ourselves, we can frivolize uh, facts. Facts just become uh, cannon fodder in a partisan war and a media war rather than than things that we uh, take in and constructively act upon. That system of distraction. We are all immersed in it, including myself. I mean, there are characters in this movie who are trying to both lead the fight uh, to get the science out in the movie, but you see that they're, they, they too are participating in this system of distraction. But we have to basically recognize that this system of distraction is the obstacle to us actually doing the things we know we need to do to address the crises in front of us. Yeah. I'm wondering if you have a prescription for that. How do we break out of that that media distraction bubble? Well, I think for those of us working in media, uh, myself included, I think what we have to do is make editorial decisions that try to always focus the content on what is at stake for millions and millions of people that it's easy to write about gossip, it's easy to write about kind of things that don't really matter, uh, frivolous things. It's much harder to focus on 
in a day-to-day way on the things that really affect millions and millions of people. And, and we understand why. I mean, it's, so it, it's a, in some, think about it. It's, a, it's an easier read to read about this or that celebrity and what their, their dating or marital status is than to read about why the healthcare system uh, is uh, harming so many people and not, not providing enough medical care to so many people. It's, it's, it's harder to, 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 to engage with the idea that we have to really do this or that thing on climate. But it is up to us in the media to focus our coverage on those serious issues and to bring, bring forward the imagination and creativity to make those stories uh, compelling. And that shouldn't be too hard a lift, right? I don't buy the idea that the audience isn't interested in climate change. If we in the media cannot make the story of a threat to the human species compelling, that's our problem. That's not the audience's problem that we're doing something wrong. So that's in, inside the media. And the other thing I would say is that the audience has to try in whatever way it can to support the media organizations that are doing the right thing. So that if you find yourself consuming uh, media, your main media sources are distraction and frivolity and propaganda, you should be asking yourself, where can I find better news sources where the information is factual and making story selection decisions based on what is actually important. And when you find those outlets, support them. Yes. And I would argue there's a great deal of local journalism that is out there doing this work, uh, you know. Absolutely. Right here, especially after, you know, after the Marshall Fire, we're seeing just a lot of great uh, reporting that isn't shying away from these hard topics. Are there any other journalists or organizations that you're following that are doing a good job? Sure. I mean, look, I you know, we run the Daily Poster, which is a uh, reader-supported news organization. It's one of a, of a number of reader-supported news organizations that are focused that are trying to focus on what's really important. We do follow the money investigative reporting about corruption and the like. The American Prospect is a great magazine that's doing that uh, every single day. Um, there are, I mean, the, I, I name that as just one example of many. My point is not to say, go look at at this or that news organization. My point is to say to everybody listening, actually ask yourself the question, what are my news sources? Don't just accept that as a passive decision. Don't just, just be a sort of passive consumer. Ask yourself, where am I actually getting my news? And are these the only sources of that news? Or are there better sources for me that I can trust. And the way you should ask whether you can trust it is, uh, it, does the news seem to focus on what is actually important as opposed to what's not important? And is the news that's being reported, is it grounded in verifiable facts? Uh, I know, I can tell you, the reporting that we do, we try to make it as transparent as possible. You don't have to trust me when I report a story. There's all the links to the source material. You can just, you can check, you can fact check me. Make sure that, that we're telling you the truth because we want to, be, to build that trust. That trust is so necessary. Right. Well, lastly, David, I, you mentioned your family earlier and I, I'm wondering if you saw this project, Don't Look Up, as... Some in some way looking out for your children's future. Hundred percent. I think about that every single day. Um, that the climate reporting that I do, uh, that this movie, all of that is 
grounded in the idea that I, as an individual, have an obligation to try to make the world a better place for my children, and that we as a collectively have a responsibility to do that for future generations. And it sounds a little bit corny or a little bit cheesy or maudlin, but that is what grounds me every single day. And I think that we need to have that on our minds all the time, that our kids and the kids of our kids who aren't even here yet are relying on us to make decisions that allow them to have, for instance, a livable ecosystem. When we don't focus on that, we are saying that our short-term satisfaction and happiness is more important than their ability to survive. And I, I reject that. You know, in, in, in my own religious tradition, there is a quote that I think about a lot, and I'll kind of paraphrase it here, uh, but it's that you are not obligated to complete the work but neither are you free to abandon that work. We're not gonna solve climate change in one day or one month or one year. If all of us right now do everything we can to mitigate and, and halt the worst effects of climate change, it's gonna take the rest of our lives. But if we don't do that work, then it is going to ruin the lives of future generations. So we need to do that work as soon as possible. David Sirota is a journalist and writer based in Denver. He's nominated for an Academy Award for Best Original Screenplay for the film Don't Look Up. David, thank you so much for joining us, and best of luck on Oscar night. Thank you. Thanks for having me. The Academy Awards will take place on Sunday, March 27th. That's our show for today. Tomorrow, two Colorado scientists were part of a team that recently discovered the oldest female infant burial in a cave in present-day Italy. The burial and other discoveries have given us new insight into a period in history we don't know much about. We'll speak with the scientists about the cave and what they're learning about the discoveries made within. I'm Erin O'Toole. Our production team includes Henry Zimmerman and Tess Novotny. Digital editing is handled by Ashley Jeffcoat and Jackie High. Thank you so much for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC.